Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome back to the fourth official episode of Headful, the science podcast. As Sean likes to say, a podcast for the passionately curious and the curiously passionate. My name is Sarah Mishik, and I'm going to be hosting this episode. Sean has been gracious enough and very trusting um, enough for me to host this episode. So I'm very thankful and I hope I do everyone proud and do not let Sean down. So for this episode, we're going to be talking to Ben Adelstein, a really interesting researcher who focuses on microfluidics. So if you've never heard of microfluidics, or even if you have, we spend this episode talking about what exactly is microfluidics and where can we see this in our everyday lives, as well as what does the future hold for this field of science. And I think you're going to be very surprised at what the answers are, because honestly, they blew my mind. At the end of this podcast episode, I was so interested in the idea of microfluidics. I cannot wait to have Ben back on. We talk about space. We talk about organs on a chip, which I've never heard of before. So if any of these pique your interest, stay tuned and I hope you guys enjoy. Hi everyone. Welcome. Um, I'm sitting here today with Ben Adelstein. Um, Ben, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? Hi. Um, yeah, so I'm, uh, I work in uh, microfluidics. I am uh, the chief technology officer for a company, uh, Potomac Photonics, that uh, designs and develops these microfluidic devices and also develops, researches new and innovative manufacturing methods for producing those devices. Okay, awesome. So today, um, based on that, we're going to be talking a lot about microfluidics, which is something that's been around for quite a while, but I don't think that many people know really what it is. So it's going to be, we would love to hear you kind of describe, like, what exactly is microfluidics? Like, what does that mean? Yeah, so great question, Um, and and I get that question a lot. Uh, Microfluidics is, uh, as the name suggests, technology that is used to conduct fluidic operations. Uh, And those operations are both physical and chemical operations. They're done on a small chip, similar to a microelectronic chip. And uh, I do think that analogy is useful because um, whereas whereas microelectronic chips perform operations uh, on electrical currents to perform calculations and generate data. Microfluidics performs chemical and biological operations to produce both materials and data. So the way I look at it is if you think about a microelectronic chip, you have switches and circuits. On a microfluidic chip, you have valves and channels. And as it turns out, the manufacturing methods for both microelectronic chips and microfluidic chips are very similar and in many cases the same. That's so interesting. So we're talking micro, right? Like how micro are we talking here? Yeah, so it's um, a great question. So, my, okay, so micro, we're talking about, you've got millimeters, um, the most, uh, Oh, let me think of it. Uh, let me re- rephrase that. I, uh, okay, so let me put an analogy here. Um, I, like a hair, a strand of hair. Yeah. Right is like what? Um, Ten micro or like a hundred nanometers or something like that. That that's correct. So so the volumes that you're talking about with microfluidics are maybe one order of magnitude larger than the volume of a human hair. Got it. So okay. a human hair is typically 
um, at the nanometers. Got it. Without, right. And so microflux will occur. Um, the other, the other uh, way to look at it um, is if you think of um, the blood vessels, the size of a typical blood vessel. That's the size. Those vary every, anywhere from 8 microns to millimeters, oh, depending wow. upon where you are in, in the body. Right, right? In the heart. Or, sure. But... Um, but but microfluidics is in the micron range, right? right? At the smaller range of diameters and sizes. Okay, so I was um, reading somewhere on the internet, obviously, prior to meeting with you because I needed to spruce up a little bit on what we were talking about. And there, we um, something that was talked about quite a bit was that um, liquids have different properties in the micro scale, right? So yeah. is that something that um, is really harnessed when talking about microfluidic devices that's something that they re- very much like rely on is these different properties and kind of what would those be yeah and, and that's a great great question um so by training i i'm a biochemical engineer so i i work um i'm, I'm used to dealing at much larger scales sure. so at much larger scales whenever you want to move a fluid from say point a to point b it's really straightforward. You use something like a pump. That's mechanical energy, pressure energy to move that fluid from point A to point B. In microfluidics, you don't need that. Microfluidics, fluid, you, you can induce a fluid to move by just the using leveraging the capillary forces themselves. Right. So the what, difference between sure. the fluid and the um, and, and, and the uh, material that that fluid is surrounded by can be used as a force to move fluid from point A to point B. Uh, alternatively, you can, uh, in some applications of microfluidics, an electric field is used for that same purpose, to generate uh, the energy required to move the fluid. So, lever- so, so um, forces of nature that you nor- ordinarily cannot use at large scale become very useful at small scale. That's so interesting. So that means, I mean, and you were talking, I thought it was a really interesting analogy that you used when you said that we're working kind of on a scale similar to that of like a blood vessel, for example. So I would imagine that you can almost mimic a biological system on a, in a microfluidics device, which is something that I know we've talked about before. So, I mean, are there some examples of these applications? Can you Give us a little bit of information about that. Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. Something I was thinking of before this podcast. Um, the microfluidics, because of because it is in some ways an interdisciplinary um, field where where engineers work together with biologists to create novel devices to to get bi- to to get biological information, for example, that can be used to develop a drug. Uh, or, or even develop a, uh, a yeast to to in, improve its productivity. Um, it's 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 uniquely it's uniquely useful for isolating systems that you want to study. So a biological system such as a metabolic pathway, okay. right? If you want to isolate that from all the other um, activities going on in a human cell, and you want to study that system, it's it's you can you can design a microfluidic device to 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 do a really good study of that system right to uh, to 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 study the details of that system and and that has a lot to do with the nature of microfluidics itself because microfluidics uses small features 
it's it it, it speeds up many rate limiting processes that occur and when you're able to speed up those rate limiting processes you get a process that more um, accurately mimics the way it happens in nature than it does in a laboratory when you're using um, flasks and test tubes and artificial equipment made by humans. So in some ways it it, um, it brings you, it, it, it uh, connects you closer to the actual um, uh, uh, process as it occurs in nature. That is so interesting. That's really cool that we're able to do that, especially because I know for me personally, my bias when I started talking to you about microfluidics is that I was thinking, okay, this must be a strictly engineering sort of a thing where we're trying to build a chip that can be integrated in some sort of device that can be, you know, and, and so it's really interesting to learn about the biological applications and how, as you said, how interdisciplinary that is. And something that I use frequently are, are things called microarrays, which is a microfluidics device, right? So it's basically a bunch of... Um, has a bunch of predefined spots with a unique probe, and you can actually um, put a sample onto these devices, and the DNA will attach to these probes. And in that way, you can kind of identify pathogens, mutations, things like that. On and I, and I didn't know that that related to microfluidics, so that was very interesting to learn. Yeah. Um, do you have any? I've heard of something called like lab on a chip. Yeah. Okay, so when we, you already, you were really good at explaining how these microfluidic devices essentially mimic um, what occurs in nature better than that of a laboratory environment. So when we're talking about like a lab on a chip, what is that, like what does that mean? What, what does it involve, I guess? Yeah, so the, the most well-known application of a lab on a chip in biology is, is the PCR. Ah, uh, uh, okay. Action, right? So what's that? And that's, that's a, the... Um, Polymerase chain uh, reaction is a reaction which is used to make it. This process is used to make large quantities of DNA, and uh, for genomic analysis and characterization. Very cool. So, so um, it used to be done um, in in much larger equipment. Yeah, because I was going to say when I was in college, we used to have these PCR machines that were massive. They would take up like the whole lab bench, you know. Right. So I didn't know. I didn't realize that that was. Con yeah, and so and so recently, within the last several years, we've we've be able to we've been able to miniaturize that entire process, right? That is so cool. And and um, and and, the, and um, it require because we're able to integrate more and more measurement devices into these chips, a lot of the peripheral equipment that you see, um, that, that you use for image analysis and uh, uh, measurement is now being incorporated into the chip itself. So a lot wow. of those measurements or sensors, we call them, are able to provide you with that data, all of that on a single chip. That is so right. neat. I, there's actually, I don't know if this is true or not, but when I was in, in school using the PCR machine, there was a, um, people would always say that the man who invented the PCR device was on acid when he did that, invented it, because he was like, how else would I be able to come up with such a, <laughs> such a creation if not on acid? <laughs> but no, I mean, it, it's really, it, it's interesting as we move forward in, um, like in our millennia, how everything is kind of gearing towards miniaturization. And um, I was actually just talking to a colleague yesterday about this, where he was warning me to be wary of trying to fit everything into a small package about, you know, the efficacy of that, of, of how, I mean, 
not considering that it's obviously cheaper and um, like less resources, obviously, to do it in wow. a smaller quantities, faster, like you were talking about. But I mean, there's things that we have to consider, right? When we're making things smaller, is that Absolutely. is this as effective? Is this reproducible? Is this something that we can, um, you know, scale up to be commercializable, that, right? That is exactly the point. And, and, and uh, it is a balance at the end of the day because not everything that can be miniaturized should be miniaturized, right? Um, this is another focus that, that uh, we at Potomac are, are really focused on right now is the microfabrication technologies themselves, okay. right? So in order for, for microfluidics to, to be successful, to, to be useful uh, for, for society, for scientists, for, for engineers, for people that are going out and measuring the, uh, um, the lead in their drinking water, for example, right? Which is another project we're working on with the University of Maryland. Um, they, they, it needs to. You, you need to be able to manufacture these in very high volumes, and and uh, and achieve what we what we call the economy of scale. And that economy of scale means, if you're going to produce something at high volume, it better be at a low cost, right? right. And so what we find out is what we learn is that uh, the, though w the engineers can get very excited about miniaturizing all kinds of peripheral devices you can't ignore the economics of manufacturing because it very quickly spirals when the more sophisticated. So at the end of the day, it's a balance between uh, sophistication and um, and scale is really what it comes down to in manufacturing. Yeah. That That's a, such a fantastic point, what you said about not everything that can be miniaturized should be miniaturized. Yeah. Because, I mean, have you, that point taken with, right, Theranos, with Elizabeth Holmes, who tried to minor, miniaturize, you know, all of this, this, um, these processes into this little Edison device um, very ineffectively, obviously, as we now know. Um, but no, it's such a good point. And I mean, to your point about um, the, you know, economics of scale, that's when we get into, okay, yeah, so you're a scientist, right? And you know the science behind these microfluidic devices and their applications. Okay, now you need to be a business person when applying your scientific knowledge, right? So, like, how is this going to be practical yeah. and scale? And that's something yeah. that I know a lot of companies struggle with in their inability to be successful is that you go from, like, a science brain to sort of, okay, now I need to think like a business person. Is this, yeah, can I scale this? Is this practical? Like, you know, things like that. And, 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 and as a business person, you have to think like uh, the, the person who's actually going to be using the device, uh, whether it's a technician or, uh, or just uh, um, a person at home, right? That device has to be simple enough um, for, for that per and, and quick enough and, and provide the information quick enough for it to be useful for right. that person. So I was reading a while ago that San Diego, uh, the, the city of San Diego is struggling. Um, uh, there's a mandate where, where you need to measure lead in all the drinking water in all the schools right now. Okay. So, excuse me. Um, so they were, so they, they were, uh, it's a very expensive uh, proposition. I can imagine. <laughs> to do that, and so they were having trouble finding budget to do that, but yet it is a law and it has to be done. Right. Um, microfluidics has to be able to address that gap, right? The gap between the cost of obtaining that measurement and the need right. to get multiple measurements over and over and over again, large volumes. For sure. Right? Because, that makes sense. Um, and so... And so that's where the businessman, or the actually, this is, I would say, more of the engineering aspect of microfluidics, the the whole the study of the manufacturing process of the device itself, right? 
and how how to achieve how to achieve the economies of scale. The economists understand what the economies of scale means. Your volume goes up, uh, your 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 price has to go down, right? But if your volume goes up and your price doesn't go down, you don't have a product. Right. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. I mean, yeah. you know, just um, on another note, just because I was thinking about what you were talking about earlier and being able to replicate these environmental conditions, we had talked about how you were involved in a project um, with space, right? Yeah. Like utilizing microfluidics yeah. to yeah, in a so, space environment. So, yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. So, um, so uh, th- this is a, a government project, okay. and. Um, this project is is long term uh, because it is focused on uh, the technologies that will be required for deep space um, exploration, and and that might be uh, as 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 you might have heard, NASA is planning, I believe, in twenty twenty four to make it to the moon as a transition to the next mission, which will be to Mars. So there's going to be all kinds of practical problems associated with that trip, uh, not the least of the fact that you have vitamins and um, uh, and and pharmaceuticals that have a shelf life. Sure. And so what um, what the scientists who study this have realized, and and there's a lot of active work on this right now, is that, and the government has realized, is that you're going to need to have the ability to produce those vitamins, to produce those pharmaceuticals, in, uh, uh, in, inside the space capsule. And and that's where microfluidics has and yet and that's one of the new cutting edge applications of microfluidics. So we call so you you might call it um, uh, a factory on a chip. Sure, yeah, a lab on a chip. That's right? a great analogy. Yeah. yeah, because what you're doing is and 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 actually this is not the project I'm working on, but one uh, one interesting one I just read about five minutes ago, fascinating uh, is is to use uh, carbon dioxide from the breath of the astronaut to uh, create an intermediate chemical, which then can be converted to a vitamin. So, right. so yeah, that, 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 that's work. Uh, that sounds on. almost like science fiction, yeah, it is, doesn't it? It is wild, yeah. So it's ca- uh, using uh, microfluidics, again, um, and, and another process called electrolysis to convert carbon dioxide into an intermediate called sodium acetate, and that sodium acetate is then converted into uh, can can then be used by microorganisms, right, as feed to microorganisms, which bacteria, which which then produce these vitamins that the. Uh, that yeah, is so really nice cool. integration that of is really many technologies cool. to solve a, a problem, but you know other more straightforward applications that we're working on in this is also um, not just for astronauts, but also could be used. Um, in, in the battlefield and in uh, situations where, um, uh, after a natural disaster, is the ability to produce um, a DNA molecule, for example, right? Uh, right. To, to or 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 an antibody, okay. or a given protein, right? Um, the ability to 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 be in a remote location and rapidly produce an antibody um, or or a protein. For therapy is is something that um, we're anticipating that that, that we, you can imagine both soldiers and people in uh, in, in uh, um, after a natural disaster could benefit from. So are you saying? I think, excuse me if I'm completely yeah. off, but when you say that would utilize DNA essentially to to generate these proteins, therapeutics in response to a natural disaster or something like that, would would since your the input would be 
DNA of a specific person, would the therapy with, with the output, would the protein produced be specific to that human, or would it be sort of like a general? Does that make sense? Is yeah, it like yeah. human specific? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I apologize. Yeah, so, so yeah, there there are a few projects out there. One of which is, and and this is where I'll be honest, uh, my uh, uh, my knowledge is somewhat limited, but I do understand their DNA therapies that are that they're they're uh, therapies that are required that require you to build essentially a DNA molecule. And so that's one of the projects that's out there. I don't know the details of that, um, but what I do know is that um, that is a very difficult task to do because it requires um, you to construct a a molecule, a DNA molecule of thousands of bases. Right, that's huge. The data is huge, right. Not to mention all all the error checking that's associated with that as well. However, uh, proteins, which are which are used regularly for pharmaceutical, is something that uh, also people would benefit from, and are not able. And and because of the way the pharmaceutical industry is structured, where these protein therapies are produced and in, um, uh, in in uh, bit large manufacturing facilities and then have to be delivered to remote locations, imagine a situation where you can in a remote location where you don't have access to that right. And you can't carry large inventories. I mean, particularly for the for the soldier who can't carry large inventories of medicine, being able to produce those as needed on demand wow. is, is what these projects are called. So that's that is really cool. So like democratizing access to to medication on demand, essentially. Correct. So that's that, right. That yes. would have so many applications. That would have so right. many uses. Yeah. That's really neat. Yeah. And one last thing I'll point out also, yeah. just uh, if you're interested, the um, the um, you had brought up the point of the ability to isolate systems and study systems. Well, another interesting application that enables you to do that is if you've heard of organ on a chip. So now organ you, on a chip. Yeah. Okay. So, so what you can do? So so what we're what you can what scientists are now working on. In fact, this is a, a project of a government pub, public private partnership called Biofab USA. Is you can basically take uh, isolate certain systems of the lung or the heart and grow them on a microfluidic chip and use them as animal models. So oh, my typically, gosh. Yeah, so, so in, in some ways, you, you can see it would probably be much more, uh, the data would be much more um, accurate. Right, uh, because it's in a controlled environment. It's in a controlled right? environment. You're, you're mimicking exactly the natural system that you see in the heart or the lung, and you're able to repeat do do the test over and over again. Reproducibility yeah. the test, absolutely. And, and, and many, many times over, and quicker um, than than you would be able to do using an animal model, and you know less you, regulations, cheaper, faster, faster more to market. effective. Yeah, Fast, faster to market. Yeah, so because you know, like the animal studies are usually the huge holdup when we're talking about you know yes. bringing a pharmaceutical to market, right? Yeah, is the animal so, testing and an animal, of course, just like us, it's a very complex system, of and then there's lots of things going on there. If you can isolate the system that you're interested in and build it on a little microfluidic chip, so an organ on a chip as opposed to the lab on a chip, that raises the, the, the possibility that we will that, that drugs will move to market quicker. Right? To play devil's advocate here, though, you could argue, though, that just isolating the intended target of the pharmaceutical yeah. would take... You lose the synergy of the... Of the of the processes occurring in the human body, yeah. right? It might leave out some really critical piece of information. Like for example, we know that there's the um, liver toxicity, the kidney toxicity yeah. of things like Advil and 
Tylenol, right? Which would we know that if we were just isolating? I don't know what you would what even isolate. It like the the capillaries yes. and the brain. These are this is the, they're you, secondary right. effects, right? No. That we may not know otherwise. But it would be an interesting thing to say. Okay, my I'm I'm trying to affect. I don't know dilation of of the heart or whatever you want yeah. to say. You know, like vasoconstriction of something, and then say, look, it works. Like prove that it works, and then it would make it easier yeah. to do or more targeted animal models rather than okay we're just going to feed a bunch of mice this you're absolutely you right and, and 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 that's why we may we're going to have to think very carefully on how it's used so so one one potential i when you when you put it that way i i agree there's so many in particular particularly when you're working with a, uh, um, a medicine a new medicine right. there's all kinds of unintended consequences absolutely. that may have, may have nothing to do with a system that exactly. you're studying but one of the things that's useful in science is to be able to fail fast. Sure, and fail fast and fail cheap. Yes, yep. right. There you go. And yeah, so you're their right. microfluidics you're may, so right. may enable that, and in that way, and in sort of an indirect way, right. help you get to the right solution. I quickly. agree with that, but yeah. you know what? I just thought of another application for that is that there is this whole movement now with meat that's not meat, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, so there's yeah. there's some guy who's growing chicken that's not chicken in a lab and like a pound of this chicken is so expensive, like hundreds of dollars, but it, it's chicken. It's just lab grown chicken. <laughs> that would be a super interesting application of that technology is to be, yes. especially yes. as our population grows and we're going to be unable to feed the people yes. inhabiting this planet. That would be a really interesting solution yeah. to that problem if i mean obviously if we continue to eat meat on the scale that we do you know what i mean but <laughs> yeah. that would be really cool actually yeah that is that that's amazing and uh there there are companies that are that are not uh that are out there doing a similar thing so uh companies like uh impossible foods yeah that are producing that are producing the protein uh, just mm -hmm. a single protein, which 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 gives you the sensation of eating meat, right? That has that taste, right? So, it, it, yeah, again, um, there's there's going to be this issue. Uh, the businessman at, at, you know, side of me looks at this and says the market acceptance, yeah, right? because there's always that aspect, and and I'm not sure we fully got past that as, as science sometimes moves ahead of market acceptance, but. Ultimately, we all have to uh, we all have to compromise, and uh, I think it's just a, and, and most of the things are, are just a matter of time. You know, maybe it takes a generation. Hopefully, it doesn't take that long, yeah. but uh, we'll eventually you no, know, get there if we need to. You're right? absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we didn't really get to? Um, I don't actually. No, I don't think so. I. Um, I think that's that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know what? Thank you so much for coming on. We would love to have you back so we can maybe talk yeah. more in depth about some of these things because, you know, just talking to you right now, I'm actually very excited about microfluidics and I yeah. feel like there's so much more I want to ask you. Um, so it would be awesome to have you back if you would like. Yeah, I would love to come back. Wonderful. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on our show. Thanks, Sarah. I appreciate that. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, there it was. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to my very first solo podcast episode. Thank you so much, Sean, for putting your trust in me. I had a great time interviewing Ben. I would love to get feedback on what you guys thought. Feel free to visit us on Headful Science on Facebook. Um, we're just getting our social media up and running, but we would love to hear what everybody thought. Or you can just share some uh, science gossip with us or some ideas that you might have 
have for things that you want to hear us talk about and people that you might want to hear us interview. Um, I just want to say shout out to Ben for coming in and giving us this awesome interview. We cannot wait to interview again and hear more about microfluidics. Hopefully we will have some more awesome podcast episodes for you guys coming up soon. It's the holidays, so there might be a little bit of a lag, but don't worry because when the new year comes, we're going to have quite a few interesting guests on our show. So thank you so much for listening and we hope to hear you back soon.